Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Mr. Tom Jokic. Tom? Christopher, we've got another great show coming up this week. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question, and that is... <laughs> this is the appetizer department, right? That's, that's right. This, this week's appetizer is, what one-hit wonder deserves better? In other words... Who deserves to be known as more than just a one-hit wonder, but really only had one hit? The Verve. You mean Bittersweet Symphony? Yeah. I don't know any of their other songs, though. That means that they're a one-hit wonder, right? That's right. That song, I mean, there's no question that that is just one of those songs for the ages. In fact, I think um, Chris Martin did a version of it in concert and referred it to as the best song ever written or something. And I I'm, I'm, I may be misquoting on that one, but that's a recollection. It's so good. And the way they use that sample from a much earlier Stones, I think it's 19th Nervous Breakdown sample. Regrettably, but yes. Yes, regrettably, because, because they got, Ver, the Verve got no money for that for years and years and years. Yeah, now I've got a few more. Sorry. Once you, see, once you ask me this question, yes. then, the, then the, the wheels start turning ever so slowly. <laughs> um, how about Soft Cell? Soft Cell, that Tainted Love is such a good song. Yeah. And maybe one of the greatest covers of all time, because that was originally done by Gloria Jones oh, uh, right. in the 60s, right? Right, right, right. So, yeah, I agree with that. How about Katrina and the Waves? Man, you cannot argue with the infectious, infectiousness <laughs> of Walking on Sunshine. Great song. And wait a minute, let me think. Oh, I know the one, and this is obscure, but grant me this one. Okay. Thunderclap Newman. Is he the guy that did Something in the Air? Something in the Air, That's yeah. a good song. That's a great song. And it's kind of like this hippie-ish, late 60s, early 70s thing? It is, but it's... It's more complicated. It's not, yeah. it doesn't hit all the obvious sort of psychedelic era points, but right. it's got this orchestrated kind of quality to it. Great vocals. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece. I think Pete Townsend was involved with that record. I think you're right. I think maybe he produced it or something. I think for me, I only have one answer, and that is Mark Cohn, the walking oh, in Memphis guy. Right. He was just an exceptional, like if you find his greatest hits, and of course when you're a one-hit wonder, people always look at a greatest hits package and go, what, what is this? But he has a tremendous body of work, and he has an album. You know, he was um, like attacked in New York City, and I think he was shot. What? And he had a near-death experience, and then right after that, he wrote an album. I think it's called Join the Parade, and it's very much a reflection on life and death. And it has a bit of a New Orleans kind of funeral vibe, but also very joyful because it's New Orleans influenced and it is a tremendous album and he's one of those guys that i think should be held up in greater esteem than he is i think his fans hold him there but i think uh walking in memphis was just a sliver of what he can do and he's a no that's a great song in itself but well you've got me curious now because i always liked that song but i don't know the rest of his work yeah Okay, tom let's talk about this week's show first of all some fantastic clips from the doobie brothers and which iteration of the doobies you may ask Is it the classic Tom Johnson era, which produced songs like China Grove, Blackwater, Listen to the Music, or the Michael McDonald era, What a Fool Believes, etc.? Well, good news, it's both. Different chats from both eras, which makes it more interesting. All right, Tom, apparently you recently chatted with someone you grew up listening to. I sure did. It was Miles Goodwin of April Wine, which was a bit of a mind blower because I've always been a big fan ever since I was a kid. And we talk about everything in this interview, from the heyday of April Wine 
to his battle with the critics, including one specific Toronto critic, who he names, so that's fun, and uh, (laughs) also what he's up to now, which includes brand new music, and it's a really interesting song and a very important one, too. We also have a 1986 interview with an artist that was very big at the time, and that's Anita Baker. Yeah, Anita was a wonderful vocalist, and normally we don't feature too many artists from that style of smooth pop, you know, middle of the road, AC, whatever you want to call it, but it is a great chat with Marilyn Dennis, and Anita is incredibly likable in this interview. All that and more, now let's start with the Doobie Brothers. From 1973, the Doobie Brothers with China Grove. Great song. The Doobies have essentially been two different bands with different members and a dramatically evolving sound from the early days when Tom Johnston was the main writer and singer uh, responsible for hits like China Grove, Listen to the Music and Long Train Running, to the Michael McDonald era of Taking It to the Streets, What a Fool Believes, and It Keeps You Running. So the interviews we have are similarly divided into two sections, the first dealing with the early history of the band, and the second with Michael McDonald as the main focus. Okay, so just a heads up that some of these clips have quite a bit of hum or background noise, but we think they're worth listening to despite that, and we've tried to clean them up as best as we can. So a couple of them are a little noisy, but I honestly think they're they're definitely uh, worth playing for you. Great. Well, perhaps inevitably, we start with the origin of the name The Doobie Brothers. uh, One morning over uh, Kellogg's Corn Flakes, somebody came up, why don't you call yourself The Doobie Brothers? Now... This next part may be edited for some viewers who <laughs> has just to their smoking abilities. But uh, Doobie means uh, joint, uh, Mary Jane, muggles, uh, marijuana cigarette, all those. And it's a uh, name that came from Rolling Stone. I've never been able to trace back the history of that word. But it was a fun name at the time. And uh, not to connotate drugs and whatnot or anything illegal, but it was just a fun name. We sort of stuck to it. <laughs> well, at least he's being honest. That's so funny. That's so funny. By the way, Dude. I have a few other clips from other members of the band saying the, essentially the same thing. Some of the other members are going, well, apparently a doobie is a marijuana cigarette. Like like they're feigning <laughs> yes. this ignorance, right? When what happened is some guy who wasn't in... I've been told. That's, that's yes. right. When some guy who wasn't in the band walked in and said, why don't you guys just call yourselves the Doobie Brothers because you're smoking weed all the time, right? So they clearly (laughs) know what the reference is to. So Uh, it is funny. Well, it it also reveals just how a really goofy name, once you've heard it enough times, just doesn't register anymore. That's just who they are. That's right. right? And they didn't like the name of the group, but they decided to stick with it until they could think of something better, and they never did. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The story behind the hits follows, starting with, Listen to the music. The song was written by Tom Johnson, Tommy, and uh, it's one of those uh, miraculous things that Tom pulled together at the last minute. Uh, he, he, lives, he loves to write like that. You know, he makes a song gun and throws the words in there. It takes about five minutes sometimes. Nobody thought it was going to do what it was going to do. Uh, the first, we all had to decide what was the single. And uh, producer Ted Templeman came up with uh, Listen to the Music, and a couple of us said, nah, it's never going to do it. But uh, we released it anyway, and sure enough, it did. From 1972, that's the first major hit by the Doobie Brothers, Listen to the Music. And to me, it's odd 
that they didn't hear the hit potential in that song. It took their producer, Ted Templeman, to help steer them to that decision. That's weird to me. How can you hear that song after it's done and go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's going to like that. It's so clearly commercial. But after you've played it like 400 times, you know, in the process of writing it, rehearsing it, and recording it, and you get a little stale on something, and I think you really easily lose perspective. That's my yeah, theory. for sure. So here's another story behind one of their songs. Love this one. An imaginary town became the source for one of their biggest hits. China Grove is uh, words go uh, about a little village in Texas. And surprisingly enough, the story is not, as it was written, it was not real. It was not true, and nobody, you know, it's just a, a fantasy song. And it was sort of nice. And we come to find out uh, about a year and a half later that uh, there really is a China Grove in Texas. Believe it or not. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. And uh, that's, that's a mind blower right there. Okay. That's weird. Christopher, they say it's an mm-hmm. imaginary town in Texas down around San Antonio, right? Okay. And Tom Johnson mm-hmm. just made it all up. By the way. I have other clips of them saying this same story, too, that we had no idea there was a real town in Texas called China Grove right near San Antonio. They find out after they record the song that there just <laughs> happens to be a town near San Antonio called China Grove, which, by the way, had been around since 1900. I think maybe the doobies just might have been smoking a little something-something when they figured that story out. <laughs> <laughs> You're so suspicious. Oh, my God. It's a ridiculous story. (laughs) Goofy. Another Doobie original gave them their first number one song. Yeah, and this time he's talking about Blackwater. Okay, this was written by Pat Simmons. And uh, like I said, what a sleeper. We we did this on an album a year before, and we finally decided, somebody finally decided to release it. And uh, it turned out quite well. Uh, I guess it's a song that would hit down south because it's a southern-type song. It was, I think, based around the Mississippi, where Pat has a lot of influence. Uh, not influence, but he's influenced quite a bit around the Mississippi area, especially in the uh, Louisiana, uh, New Orleans area, uh, Toulouse Street, we all were. And uh, it's the first 45 that we got a gold on. And uh, of all the albums we've ever got gold on, it's the first one ever we picked a uh, gold 45. It, it is a sleeper. It's a, it's a low-key type mellow song versus our other ones. It sure is. It's it's well. It's almost acoustic, whereas right. everything else is exactly. pretty heavy metal stuff. Right. It, it's something you know, something a little different than uh, what, what at the time it was released. Everything was very very heavy on the AM radio, mm-hmm. and, uh, as well as FM, and for it to come out like that, it was, uh, it was quite a shock. Keep on Blackwater from the Doobie Brothers from March of 1975, their biggest hit to that point. That is such a cool song, Christopher. Wonderful arrangement and a great feel. Well, it really expanded their sound for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and people's perception of them, yeah. of course. One other comment to make here is uh, when the announcer says he's surprised at how mellow Blackwater is since all of their other hits are heavy metal. Did you hear that? I think perhaps that most (laughs) rock songs were called heavy metal in those days, even though in hindsight, they are nowhere near heavy metal. But it is kind of a funny thing to say because the guy in the the Doobie Brothers didn't correct him. He didn't say, oh, we're not heavy metal, man. What are you talking about? It was just kind of accepted. Still more to come with the Doobie Brothers next on Famous Lost Words. That's right. And we'll jump ahead to the Michael McDonald years, which was a seismic shift in the band's sound, but they became even more popular. 
Famous Lost Words is heard in more than 100 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. Catch up with past episodes on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you enjoy podcasts. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic as we continue with the Doobie Brothers. So this time around, Christopher, we're jumping ahead a few years to the Michael McDonald era of the band, which marked one of the many changes to the group's lineup. This first clip is with Patrick Simmons, one of the original members, talking about the evolution of the band. I just dig the music. I've dug it through all different changes we've been through, and it's still happening, and that's what's really kept me there. Has it been real difficult for you as an artist, as a performer, to have to go through getting into all these people and then getting out of them? Yeah, yeah, I have to say that's probably been... Uh, it's a little bit upsetting sometimes when one person leaves and uh, some other people come along, but... As long as uh, the caliber of musicians is as good as old John here, and uh, it's young John, young John, I'm sorry, I'm the old elder statesman. This is John McPhee. He's one of our new members, so uh, that's why I refer to John. As long as the musicians are as you know as fine uh, a caliber as John and, and the other fellows that have come to work, I'll still be there playing. So. All right, now to the man himself, Michael McDonald, who was recruited to the Doobies after Tom Johnston got severely ill. Now, these clips are from 1976, when Michael had been with the band for about a year and a half. He begins by talking about the album, Taking It to the Streets. Well, mainly, I tell you, the reason I wrote it was uh, the uh, album. We, we, when we started the album, we really had no concept of it, what, what the concept was going to be of the whole album. And uh, it seemed like most of this tunes on the album were urban kind of oriented lyrics and uh, about cities and for the most part they were all the very light side of you know cities you know there's a lot of nice things about living in the city about walking around new york like eighth uh, avenue shuffle would represent and then there's uh, also a part of the city and a, a way of life in the city that's there that should be you know written about if you're going to do a concept album From 1976, that's Taken It to the Streets, the very first single to feature the unmistakable voice of Michael McDonald. Here he talks about the health issues that sidelined original band leader Tom Johnston. When you say he's not well, you have to realize that by that we mean he's the kind of person that is always under a doctor's care, uh, has a nurse that lives at his house, and uh, the guy's on a real strict diet, and he just uh, can't maintain that sort of life on the road, you know. Yeah. It's a bad situation, and nobody would ever wanted to see that happen to, with Tommy. You know, see him take ill like that. But some people found uh, a certain uh, thing within themselves. You know, they wouldn't have tried before. I think with Patrick, for instance, he found himself writing much more. You know, trying to take up the slack for Tom. You know, and uh, in the long run, found that he could do it. I think a lot of that pressure was what put Tommy in a, in a uh, unhealthy state himself. You know, was. Uh, come up with the tunes, come up with the, you know, to be there constantly in the forefront, you know. Myself, I figure if I get two tunes on the album, I'm doing fine. And uh, if I'd rather have two good tunes on the album than to drive myself crazy trying to write a lot of so-so uh, songs, you know. Uh, and uh, the thing is, we depend on each other a lot more now. 
what a great point that Michael McDonald makes about Tom Johnston and the pressure he faced as the lead singer and main songwriter. Imagine having five or six other guys relying on you and you alone to come up with 10 good songs to put on an album. And it never once occurred to me to consider that kind of pressure, which is interesting because, you know, Michael is just happy to get one or two, well, he says two songs per album and Patrick Simmons can write a few more and all that just to make, just to fill out an album. And it's not all down to one person. So there's a lot to that. Yeah. And the Doobies are now on the road to celebrate their 50th anniversary of the band. And it's Tom Johnston, Michael McDonald, Pat Simmons, and John McPhee. Tom, you had another one of those pinch me moments the other day, right? Oh, indeed I did, Christopher. I got the chance to chat with the great Miles Goodwin, the leader of April Wine. And Miles has an important new song out. And of course, I wanted to dig into the past as well. And he was more than eager to discuss it. But I started by asking him about his latest project. I want to talk, first of all, Miles, about the new song, Some of These Children Never Grow Up, about the loss of all the Indigenous children in the residential school system. Why did you feel that you needed to make this record? Really, because my partner is Native. I see. Uh, my lifetime partner, they see Sue Assiniboine from Saskatchewan. And so since we've been together in our years together, I'm more sensitive to issues like, you know, whatever involves the Native people and often the, you know, the injustices and so forth. Yeah. Um, and uh, the prejudice and all the rest of it. Uh, in Canada in particular, and what's, you know, directly been related to her, because, like, we're family, right? Her mm -hmm. children are an extension of my family, and you know, she's a grandmother now, as I am. So it, it, it affects me. What affects her affects me. And, of course, her mother survived the residential school system. And, like I said, she has children. So so when this became apparent and in the news, it, it really affected her. It really, you know, I saw the tears, and it just it's just heartbreaking. And uh, just kind of expressed, I'm not a political person. All my years in the business, over 50 years of recording, I, I've never been into politics. I've never been into religion. I just don't touch them. They're kind of right. a lose-lose wasteland for me. And so, uh, but in this case, I had to say something. And, uh, and that's it. Well, let's have a quick listen to it. Here's some of these children, they never grow up. Miles Goodwin from the new album called Long Pants. We can't accept the insanity. The truth the world needs to see Some of these children They never grew up And some of these children No, they never grew up There you go, brand new music from Miles Goodwin Some of these children never grow up It is such a powerful song Let's go back to the beginning now when did it all change for you? Is there a moment when you realized that you wanted to make music? Or like, was it the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, or was it some other event? No, music was just very, you know, it was part of our household, you know. Right. And, and here in the Maritimes, I don't know that it's all that different from anywhere else, but everybody down here has a guitar. You know? It's just like, <laughs> you know, they were playing, when I was a kid, they were playing Hank Snow, my dad who loved country music. So really, you know, I learned to, you know, hold on to a guitar and play some basic chords uh, by listening to the popular country songs back in the in the early days. But uh, you're right about the Beatles, though. But before the Beatles, um, on Ed Sullivan in '64, there was Elvis Presley in 1956, and I right. saw that. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I watched that. I was eight years old, and I was mesmerized at black and white television, just looking at uh, looking at this man. And uh, of course, I was that, that was totally read right into Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley. Jeez, I know every single Elvis Presley song. As soon as they came out, I learned them. Right. At eight years old, I knew all of them. <laughs> I could play before I was eight. I know that because I could do all of Elvis. That's fantastic. And and the Beatles, and of course, in '64, gave it a great big kick. You know, gave it into into the the possibilities of writing songs. Miles, I just want to talk quickly about our, those early days of Canadian content regulations, which was designed to help Canadian acts get a fair shake on radio, because a lot of the Canadian stations were kind of a little bit biased against Canadian music. But April Wine was a band that radio couldn't ignore because we needed to play Canadian music and why not play the best? And you guys were among the best artists in Canada at that time. And so it was great for you guys. How do you view that whole episode in hindsight? Well, I I think it was great because we didn't really have any kind of a star system. We didn't have uh, any kind of music industry here we didn't yeah. have the managers and the publishers and the recording our studios and the publicists so we didn't have anything mm-hmm. i think it helped you know it's not just april one it's much bigger than did it help paper wine oh my god no it's much 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 bigger sure how did it how did it affect the canadian music industry as a whole it was a tremendous uh, boost in the arm to be able to to, to the radios have to play uh 30 content so they had to play three out of ten let's say and, and that and you know what it did? It opened up the ears uh, to, to, to disc jockeys and so forth saying, well, geez, I mean, I wouldn't have probably heard this. Yes, exactly. If it right. wasn't for the, and this is really good. Yeah. You know, this is, this is good stuff. And, and, and everybody that started back then was affected. I mean, from Rush to everybody, I don't care who you name. Yeah. If you were Canadian at that time, Canadian content was, was part of your uh, developing career. Still much more to come with Miles Goodwin of April Wine, including their breakthrough hits in the U.S. and the very famous and infamous Toronto gig they did with the Rolling Stones. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. We're currently in the middle of Tom's recent chat with Miles Goodwin of April Wine. What was the vibe with Miles, Tom? Christopher, I got to admit, I was a little wary because in some of the interviews in the archives that we have, Miles can be a little bit cranky, but I, I think it had a lot to do with the Toronto media because yeah. that's where the interviews took place. And he explained that in hilarious detail. But I think Miles is now in a very good place. Also, he's not in Toronto, so he's in a better place in his world. And it also helps, I think, that he has meaningful new music out, particularly his song about Indigenous children in the residential school system. And of course, when you talk to a classic artist, you have to lead with their new stuff, or they might think you'll never get to that topic. So I made sure that I did that by talking about his newer music. Um, Because you don't want them to be grumpy about talking about all the old days when they want to talk about the new stuff. So that's the way I see it anyway. So in this segment, you do get to the heart of April Wine's heyday. Oh yeah, we sure do. But first, we have a little fun at the expense of the Toronto media. Part of what we do on this show is we dig up old interviews from the archives, and we play the best parts. And we've featured you and April Wine already a number of times on previous episodes, and one of my favorite clips, Miles, is so funny. You were not happy with the Toronto media at the time, and our, okay. our, our announcer Oh, I you. wonder why not. I wonder why <laughs> okay. not. Okay. God, they hated us. They were so cruel yes. to us. Yes. 
Why? Oh, what, what was one that? guy in particular. One guy in particular was a real Peter Goddard. Yeah, you got it. Peter <laughs> Goddard was a miserable. And, and and if you're going to use any part of this yes. conversation, yeah. please let me remark on Peter Goddard when I okay. have a chance. Please let me do that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so our announcer. Now I got to remind you that you know that 1050 Chum, although it's a little bit before my high my my time, played a ton of April Wine music and on Chum yeah, FM yeah. where I worked at, starting in the mid 80s we played a ton there as well. And so sure. I think you were in you were in safe haven there but one of our one of our guys our announcer says when are you guys coming back to Toronto to play in Toronto and you say never and then you pause and you say unless we come back later this summer. And it was such a funny <laughs> moment. It's such a funny moment, Miles, because it shows your anger, but it also shows, A, your kind of practicality and the fact that, yeah. well, you don't need to take that out on the vans. Obviously, you're very upset with the critics. Okay, go ahead and tell your Peter Goddard story. Well, there was a period of time when the Toronto press was very, very hard uh, yeah. on April 1. And I don't know, and there were some people in particular that, continually uh put us down no matter what we did right. peter goddard was one name that stood out he, he wrote for one of the major publications yeah. there as a music critic and he was relentlessly uh putting us down but it's really interesting because the very last thing he said at the end at the very end of the last thing he ever wrote he said i'm paraphrasing and so i called my dad and, and he and my dad said to me as a critic what did you ever have against april wine and that's how this article ended. His career, his career, his career. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. He yeah. was in the star. Yeah. And the last thing he ever wrote to the star was his dad asking, "What the hell did you ever have against April Wine all these years? Could you imagine the yeah. the last thing on his mind? I hope he's well. I hope I really do. Yes. I hope he's doing okay. I wrote a song called Rock and Roll is a Vicious Game. Good song. Which has become a classic. It's been yes. recorded by other people in the States. I mean, and, and, you know, it was about it was about uh, Elvis Presley and Janice, Jimmy, and, and how rock and roll could be a vicious game. And it was, in particular, it was about normal people that just wanted to be a musician more than ever. They love music more than anything in the world, but it just didn't work for them. It, right. It's a tough game. But, oh, no. Oh no! <laughs> Toronto is all April wine, sour grapes. Miles is complaining, rah, 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 rah. and I just went, "Oh my God, I give up." Yes, but yes. To this day, the song stands up, and it's still in our repertoire. And like I say, it's 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 been a hit for us, and a signature song, right up there with "I Like to Rock and Roller" and yeah. "Rock and Roll is a Vicious Game." Just between you and me, it's right it's right yeah. there in our in our top list. Yeah. yeah. So okay. there you go. Well, let's have a listen to a part of that song, "Rock and Roll is a Vicious Game." Uh, isn't it a from 1978 on the album First Glance, that's Rock and Roll is a Vicious Game by April Wine, and I'm talking to Miles Goodwin right now. Miles, I saw you guys in 1981, I think it was the Nature of the Beast tour, and it was in Kitchener, Ontario, and as a drummer, I was mesmerized by your drummer, Jerry Mercer. It was a great show, a world-class show, and it was around the time when you guys were getting international success. How do you look back on those days, those very, very heady days for the band? Well, the thing is, um, you know, by the by, by the time we were doing the tour that you mentioned, yeah, uh, you know, we had already broken into the U.S. and Europe. You know, right. so basically, with uh, with two albums, Harder, Faster, and First Glance. First Glance was the first of those three. 
yeah. at first glance had a song called Roller. Roller's a great song. Yeah, Roller broke us internationally. I mean, yeah. you know, every radio loved it everywhere. So that opened the doors. And of course, the, but you know, it's interesting what you say. Before we broke in the States, we toured very successfully in Canada. Yeah. We could sort of live in Canada without the rest of the world, quite honestly. Yeah. I, you know, I, I had everything I needed. I made a lot of money already. I was driving new cars. I had a, uh, you know, every, everything was, I had everything I needed. But it was so gratifying, finally, <laughs> in 1977, to break internationally. And that's when we took off because of Roller at first glance, and it was harder, faster than it was just between you and me, and so forth. There's that historic, and I know you've been asked about this a thousand times. I, I'm going yeah, to ask you anyway. Yeah. 1977, yeah. Elma Combo, Rolling Stones. What do you remember about that whole event? Um, I felt like we were in the way. Oh. Uh, you know, when you're in a small club and the Rolling Stones are actually going to play in front of a few hundred people in a club, you're, everything's in the way. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, right. know, I kind of felt like that. I was uncomfortable that way, but I did. You know, can I say that I really enjoyed it? I, I don't know that I did so much as like, I just want to play well enough to get out of the way. No, we were also recording an yeah. album, which turned out quite well, called Live at the Elma Combo. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember, uh, I, the only one I really got to meet, rather than just a passing high and a nod, because they were very private. You know, that's when uh, Keith Richards was busted for heroin. Yes. And all of that thing mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, so a lot of police were involved and all kinds of crap like that. So, but, I, but I do remember Mick Jagger during the sound check in the afternoon. He was there in this small club. And it wasn't even a sound check. He just, he just you know, came into the club, see what was going on while we were, you know, getting things set up and whatever. And I remember uh, him saying uh, hi and, and a handshake, and, and his face is what I'll never forget because uh, he has a, a wonderful smile. I mean, he's all teeth, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so when he gives you that, hello, mate, and he gives you that big yeah. that handshake and a big smile, he's very charming. Right. Really charming, and I thought he was, he was wonderful. And I remember him just standing up on the stage and kind of bouncing up and down to see how much room he had before his head went through the, <laughs> the, the, the ceiling, things like that. But, uh, no, it was very exciting. Maggie Trudeau, I remember that, all the hoopla oh, around yeah. her and, me, and meeting her that night uh, very quickly with all the bodyguards around. But it was quite, quite something. So aside from that, Miles, tell us about a couple of big moments where you just kind of couldn't believe you know, how things worked out for you in April Wine. I understand one of them has to do with the city of Montreal. Wow. How did we get to the Montreal Forum? Like, we spent yeah. so much time at the Forum. <laughs> how did we get to sell out this entire place? Now, this is back when they sold 360. Yeah. Like, completely behind in front of the stage, side stage, everywhere. 360. Oh. Two sold out nights at the old Montreal Forum, standing there going, wow. Yeah. Or with the Stones down in, in the U.S. playing, because uh, they took us with us uh, for a few shows after the Elma Combo. Yeah. You know, you're standing in front of 40,000 people and you're going on before the Rolling Stones. That's one of those, yeah, reality checks, you know, isn't it? That's like, great. Wow, I can't, I can't believe that. Look at that sea of people out there. Yeah. They're here for the Rolling Stones and we're going to go on first. And I actually felt better about that than I did when I was playing in a small club before them because I kind of got over the immediate you know, shock of being in their presence. Yeah. <laughs> but still, but still completely in awe. <laughs> Miles Goodwin, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. The new song is called Some of These Children, They Never Grow Up. The new album is called Long Pants. Thanks so much, Miles Goodwin of April Wine, for chatting with us here on Famous Lost Words. All right. Stay safe always. Good stuff, Tom. That was Tom in conversation with Miles Goodwin of April Wine. Still more to come, including a 1986 interview with an artist we haven't heard from in a long while. 
Yeah, it's been more than 30 years since Anita Baker was on the radio, but this coming 1986 interview with Anita and Marilyn Dennis is exceptional. Also on the way, the very haunting and tragic story behind Elvis Presley's first major hit. Christopher, I want to spring this clip on you. We're just going to do a behind-the-hits segment on one song, okay? And the song is Heartbreak Hotel. And this clip is Mae Axton, who, by the way, is the mother of... Hoyt Axton. A performer and songwriter in his own right. He wrote which he wrote one or two of the Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Okay. He wrote Joy to the World that was a big hit for Three Dog Night. His mother, May Axton, co-wrote Heartbreak Hotel. And this is her describing the idea for writing that song. Tommy Durden came in and said, Have you seen the newspaper? And it was still folded up. I said, I haven't had time, Tommy. I'm busy. He said, You've got to see it. He was walking the floor. Here on the front page was a picture of a man. And uh, he had torn out every identification mark in his clothes, his wallet, everything, and had written one sentence, I walk a lonely street. And he clutched it in his hand and killed himself. And I sat there stunned for a moment. Then I looked up and I said, Tommy, but everybody in the world has someone who cares about him. And one someone who cares about this man sees this picture, they're going to be heartbroken. So let's put a heartbreak hotel at the end of that lonely street. He said, let's do. So I got up and went over to the piano. He came over. It, it was a combination, something like I, I started singing. And since my baby left, now i got a new place to dwell. He said, it's down at the end of the lonely street. I said, that heartbreak hotel. And that's the way it emerged. It's a lonely, baby, baby. Well, it's a lonely. Well, it's a lonely. Wow, that's May Axon from probably uh, late 70s, because I know she, in the same interview, she's talking about the recent passing of Elvis Presley. And so that's why we have this interview. So I would say late 70s, early 80s, May Axon talking about writing Heartbreak Hotel. Don't you love that clip? I, I, I have to tell you, I do love that clip. And I heard another version of it in person because I met her on the trip to Nashville in 1987 and, and to Memphis where I wrote uh, Black Velvet. Oh, wow. And um, we went to her place and it was the huge mansion with the big white pillars. And when we arrived and came inside the foyer, she welcomed us by coming down ever so slowly, this long descending, curving staircase. Wow. Full Southern Belle in effect. I mean, it was brilliant. And she told very much the same story. The other thing she added to the story, though, is that she gave Elvis Presley a piece of the song uh, gave, and gave him a writing credit in exchange for him making that his first single on his new record deal with RCA Records. Okay, so this is really interesting because to me, I was thinking that RCA was very audacious to actually put this song out to introduce Elvis to the world. But now we know the real reason why it happened. Elvis said, sure, you can have me on your record label. This is the first song I want out. That's the way May Axton tells it. Wow, <laughs> that is mind-boggling. There you go. May Axton and Christopher Ward on Famous Lost Words. <laughs> That's Anita Baker and her breakthrough single, Sweet Love, from the 1986 album, 
rapture. You know, Tom, Anita has one of those voices that is instantly recognizable and completely commands a listener's attention. Her second album, Rapture, produced hits, Grammys, and multi-platinum sales. This is a great one-on-one with Marilyn Dennis. Here, Anita talks about dealing with doubts from people in positions of power, trying to make a new beginning, delaying celebration, and keeping it simple. You know, you're 28, is that right? I'm 28. So what a human measuring stick you are. I was reading, I was reading, I'm serious. I mean, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. Because you are so good and your album is so good. But you know what? You poor thing. You've gone through a lot of grief over the last eight years. Let's go back to 1978. Let's talk about the group Chapter 8, about the the, uh, company saying, yeah, saying, uh, sorry, no more uh, label. And by the way, that lead singer you have cannot sing. Did they say that about you? Let me tell you what they did, first of all. They recorded us, um, and they released the album in maybe three markets. Maybe three markets. Uh, And then they decided that they were not going to renew our option to record us a second time because they didn't feel like we had what it took to make it in the music business. And at the time, uh, you know, I'm like very young, and I assumed at the time that it took talent to make it in the music business. I've since come to find that it takes a lot of other things as well. But, um, um, you know, I assumed I, that these these are professional people. They're record executives, and they do this for a living. They must know what they're talking about. So I better not try to make this my day job, you know. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I, I mean, I come from a single-parent home, uh, inner-city Detroit kid, and we were raised... Uh, to be self-sufficient, very practical people. And uh, the idea was, well, you've given this enough time. It's not happening for you. You know, go and get a job. And nobody had to tell me to do that. Um, But I felt that they could have been a little more tactful. I mean, because these, you you know, you're dealing with people's dreams here. And I was relatively young at the time. And uh, I I had since moved out of my mom's apartment uh, because with Chapter 8 we were doing quite well. Um, in terms of being able to make a, a moderate living. Mm-hmm. But um, I had my own place to sustain, and it wasn't about going back to my mother's house, although the door is always open. But uh, Pride was in the way, too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I have to make my own way, must make my own way. Uh, wouldn't have it any other way. So um, I waited tables and bars and answered ads, and I, I finally I answered an ad uh, for a receptionist in a small law firm in downtown Detroit. And again, um, I was fortunate because they liked my voice. Everything positive that's ever happened to me has been as a result of my voice, either my speaking voice or my singing voice. Along comes this guy named Otis Smith who had been affiliated with Areola Records and had since two years has passed now. Um, And he has... uh, formed his own record label, recorded Bobby Womack successfully, uh, Johnny Taylor, and now he wants to record me. That's all it took to get me back into the business, uh, express the desire to make me a star. (laughs) You must be feeling on cloud nine. How do you really feel? Can you believe it? (laughs) Can you believe what's happened to you? I can't believe it. (laughs) But I also haven't had a chance to sit down at home and feel all of this stuff, then I think I'll get the gist of it, you know, but I haven't really even got it yet. When I heard Sweet Love, I I said, who is that? 
right? <laughs> who uh, who is that? Who is that? Then we see the video. No glitz to you, lady. That is on purpose, isn't it? Doggone right. Um, I, you will never see me dripping in sequins uh, or descending from a mountainous staircase onto the stage. Um, the album cover is simple. The music inside is simple. There's no production. There's not 30 strings and 10 horns. The stage show, there is no production. There's a rhythm section and three girls and myself. If the music is not the show, I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who, if I try to be something other than what I am, it's not going to come off. If I try to be extremely sophisticated and cosmopolitan, I'm going to trip over the coffee table, okay? That's wonderful. I just love that mm. interview. That is one of the yeah. earliest interviews that Marilyn Dennis ever did when we started working together. And Marilyn connects with her so quickly. That's such an unusual oh, yeah. skill that she has. Like just by saying, hey, we're the same age, you know, and I'm using you kind of as a measuring stick for my life. Like that's, that's a funny way of getting into an interview and connecting with that artist very quickly. So I have to tell you that there was another time when Marilyn and I were together, and I actually cannot find this interview, but Marilyn interviewed... Mick Hucknell from Simply Red. We had a great interview. Mick is a little bit aloof during the interview, but he's fine. Yeah. Anyway, we all leave at the same time. So all three of us, Mick Hucknell, myself, and Marilyn Dennis are in an elevator. And Mick, kind of looking around, checking out the acoustics of the elevator, all of a sudden starts singing the opening line from Sweet Love by Anita Baker. Now, <laughs> like, wow, it was beautiful and it made you realize what a beautiful tuneful melodic song that was and with mick hucknell standing right beside you singing it both of us <laughs> got goosebumps just looked at each other and we still talk about that moment it was just great well that that's a fantastic moment i love that <laughs> he is a formidable singer too that would that would make it even more yeah. impressive it's just his his incredible pipes in that small space that's right. I saw him play at the El Macombo one time, and he opened the show a cappella by singing Bill Withers' song, Grandma's Hands. Oh, wow. That does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is written and produced by that guy, Tom Jokic. Co-written by that guy, Christopher Ward. Theme music by Christopher and Rob Wells. Executive producer, Sarah Cummings. Special thanks to Mike Ben Dixon. Our show is heard in more than 100 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. Check out past episodes on the iHeartRadio app and other podcast platforms. 